Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. And Sharon pushes her to the side and we'll keep going out. And, and I see this to my right, a, there's a house on fire, the garage. And I have no idea what's going on. And little by little, we get it out of Jake Duncan that that's Randy and Rachel, you know, that the, the plane has crashed. And at that moment, once I have the realization I had this huge, I, I, I couldn't hear anything except this low hum, like that really low hum, and I, it was just like, I, I, I couldn't believe what was my reality. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, to this number, 33444. You'll get a download right away. Are you one of nearly 7 in 10 Americans who doesn't feel fully rested when the alarm clock rings? Do you dread your mornings? Let's change that. Psalm Sleep is a drug-free, non-habit-forming sleep drink in a small can that can help save your nights from tossing and turning. Find out for yourself at getsom.com and stop dreading your alarm. Psalm Sleep, it gives you Z's. So our guest today is a Cuban-American. He's a musician. He's a bass guitarist. Has played and performed with bands such as uh, Ozzy Osbourne, Quiet Riot, recorded uh, the Metal Health album, which was the first heavy metal album to reach number one. He's toured with White Snake, among many others, and was also voted number one bassist in Circus Magazine. Our guest is the author of the book Off the Rails, which I just finished, a fantastic read. And I highly recommend watching Hired Guns, a documentary whose our guest's classic line was this. He said, as long as my fingers are moving, I'll still be playing, which is true today. Our guest today is none other than Rudy Sarzo. Rudy, thanks so much for joining us, man. Dr. Bell, thank you so, so much for having me on your show. Well, I'm uh, glad. Can, yeah, go ahead, can man. Just, can I just bring up a couple of things? Because, uh, uh, you know, uh, if I'm on the show and you introduce me in such, you know, a couple of things, people would say, well, he did not correct it. And, uh, and actually, it's uh, about mental health. It was the first debut to reach number one in the metal, you know, from the metal genre. First debut, debut. album. Because, okay. yeah, debut. Yeah, because there were other metal records that went to number one. And the, you know, certain people will go like, well, he didn't correct that. I say, okay, so I'm, I'm just bringing that up. And it's no, a very I appreciate common, it. I, it's, it's, it's a very common uh, uh, misconception. Uh, <laughs> even members who have been in the band, not that actually, you know, they also say that. So, you know, so you're not alone. Sure. <laughs> and, and, and the other one is that I actually don't consider myself Cuban-American. I am uh, an American that was born in Cuba. Okay. So I was actually born in Cuba. And, and Cuban-America is pretty much like second generation, you know, from families, uh, you know, stuff like that. Well, I appreciate you fixing that. Well, I mean, I know your heritage is very important to you. You talk about it a lot in your book. And um, why do you mean to do any disservice to the, to the oh, intro there? No, no, no. This is just in the, in the, uh, just in the service of clarity. And, For sure. And you being a doctor, that's, that's what you're all about clarity. You know? Well, I'm not a real doctor, man. Don't, I hope you don't have a heart attack or anything here, man. It's just a, oh, just a okay, PhD, well, no but... problem. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, let's, let's, let's start with that. I mean, in terms of, of mental health, since it was the first debut it was the debut first heavy al uh, album to make it to number one. I mean, let's start with that because you spoke about it in the past. No one believed in that album, right? Yeah, and to me, that that's my per favorite genre of music. You know, you know. Uh, last night we watched the uh, uh, the Grammys, 
And uh, metal has never been, or even rock and roll has never been a uh, a contender or a favorite at the Grammys because, you know, rock and roll, I grew up with rock and roll. Well, first of all, I grew up with Latin music. Then my family came to the United States in 1961. There wasn't really that much rock and roll on the radio. In 1961, you have pretty much Frankie Avalon and uh, Pat Boone and, and artists like that singing what was supposed to be rock and roll, you know. And then the British Invasion, that's what changed everything for me, you know. So that was rock and roll. And the Beatles, I took I took them a while to start being acknowledged by NARIS, the National Association uh, uh, Recording uh, uh, Artists, you know, national. And, and it's, uh, it's about science and recording, you know, that's that was the foundation of NARIS, you know, the award, the Grammys is the awards, you know, from NARIS. And, you know, so it's not about record sales, really. I, you know, the Metal Health, uh, that album that you just uh, talked about is Diamond, you know, uh, sales worldwide over 10 million. We never even got an, an notice for for a Grammy. We did get an Emmy nomination for sound for a live show. That will be an Emmy. But as far as Grammys, no, and it it doesn't really care. You know, these are people in and that pay money to to be part of this or you know association, uh, and they vote. And I've been part of the process. I can tell you exactly what it is. You know. Uh, it's if you have friends in the industry and you are part of the of the Grammys, uh, a member, a member of the Grammys that you have to pay for, you know, your dues. Uh, what happens is, you know, your friends call you up and say, hey, listen, you know, we got this record. Yeah, these are friends that either are in the band or part of a of a label. And they go, listen, can can you vote for these artists that are in our label? So it's all very incestuous. Right. Really. You know, one of the things I believe is that I think we have to be told at some point, like, you can't do it. I think that's the thing about with mental health and no one believing in it. I mean, you had to believe in the product of what you were doing because so much blood, sweat, and tears were poured into that to make that work. Yes, absolutely. You have to believe it, but <laughs> your your expectations are not exactly what the outcome is. My expectations when I joined the band was two things. I wanted to uh, I wanted to get the joy of playing music back in my life. I uh, I left Ozzy Osbourne, one of the biggest bands in the world, for the complete unknown, which was Quiet Riot, uh, a band that nobody believed. And not only they not all people didn't they just didn't believe in the genre that what we're, the music that we're doing because there were other bands on the Sunset Strip like. Motley Crue was still around, you know, at that time, had just been gotten together. There was bands like Mickey Rat, which were turning to Rat and Dokken and Great White in some shape or form. And so that music was coming, sort of still alive in Los Angeles, not as popular as New Wave and Punk were, but, you know, there were still those musicians were ready to go as soon as MTV opened up and, and the floodgates you know, just that music just become became one of the darlings of the early days of MTV. Uh, so it wasn't like, uh, you know, I believe that this this can go to number one. No, no, it was like I I hope that it sells enough records so we can make a second one, right? And make a living out of you know being a musician. You know, not millions of records. That wasn't our 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 vision. So. Not to jump the timeline a little bit, but to go back before. So, I mean, you're you're in L.A., you saw Quiet Riot play, and then you meet Kevin later after that show. I mean, you had no idea how important that meeting was going to be at that time. You couldn't have known. No, absolutely not. And I did not even know if you go go back. Uh, that, that was like 76, 77, because I did not join the band immediately. Right. But if you go back five years to 1972, I met Frankie Benelli after watching his band open up for David Bowie, uh, Spiders from Mars tour in, in around Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I met him on my birthday the following day, you know, and I just, I exactly did the same thing. I'm of course, you never know what the outcome is going to be a lifelong 48 year friendship until he passed away last year. Yeah. Sorry uh, about that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. 
uh, and, uh, you know, with Kevin, the same thing. It's just, you know, I'm a fan of music. If I see somebody that's doing something that I go, hey, you know, I know the effort yeah, you're going through and all the, uh, <laughs> you know, all the challenges to get your music heard, you know, keep going, man. You know, you're 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 really onto something here. You know, and that was with Frankie was exactly the same way. I watched them play the night before. I had no idea he was the drummer. I thought he was the bass player. And I went over and said, "Hey, man, I I love what I saw, and you guys are great." And by the way, I think your 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 drummer is phenomenal. And he goes, "Oh, thanks. I'm the drummer." I felt oh, I had the cheap seats all the way in the back, so I really couldn't. See. And he had like a mountain of drums in front of him. And the same thing with with Kevin. You know, I went in, I saw Quiet Riot, and I said, wow, these guys are doing an arena performance in a club. I get it. These guys, if they keep it up, you know, they'll, they're, they're going to get there. And by getting there, it means you're going to get a shot at a record deal. Right. And then you're going to have a certain collection of songs that if one of them gets on the radio, you know, you're, you're on, on the road, um, whatever that road, you know. We, you know, it's like on the road i mean there are roads out there and and some of us will travel a mile and some of, some of us will go across country on that same road so it all depends on the individuals yeah so to fast forward a bit so ozzy is about 10 days away from touring and then you get the call from sharon osborne can you take us back there and walk us through how that transpired yeah, yeah. Well, the first call was from Sharon, and uh, actually, what happened is they they were looking for a bass player in LA, and um, they it, 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 the bass player needed to have certain attributes. Which one one of them was? Uh, of course, you have to be able to play, and you have to look a certain part because back then that was very important, having a certain image, and uh, and the other one was not to be a bad influence on Ozzy on the mm -hmm. road, you know, as far as taking drugs and drinking. And uh, Randy, because I already have played with him in Quiet Riot and I taught at his mom's school right next to his little room. So we spent a lot of time together there. He knew me. He knew me. He knew that he could trust me to fill that, that, that spot because, you know, I was not going to be a bad influence on Ozzy. <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> That's an easy quality to have, and uh, uh, and and I could play the parts, and I, you know, I could be a, a decent human being at traveling in the bus with everybody because we're all in one in one bus, you know. And uh, so he said, "Hey, listen, Rudy is the guy that you're looking for because if you know to join a band, I I I get I get." Uh, social media messages from hundreds of musicians and they say hey man can you recommend me for this and that i don't know the person you know i have actually been on the road in a band with somebody that years later turned out to be uh, a, a murderer spent time in jail hmm. it was a, a guy that i i was in living at his parents house at one time you know for for a couple of weeks you just never know who these people are so you know after randy spending all this time with me he said okay yeah rudy he's the guy you're looking for you know no no problems here and that's how that's how they set the things in motion you know and uh, so i got the call from sharon i was playing in a band called angel i didn't think about it i you know i um i i it was a basically an alcoholic decision that I made, you know, I was, I, and when I say alcoholic is because, uh, I, uh, I've been sober for over 23 years, but it wasn't until recently that I, that I joined AA and I learned about, you can be sober, but you can still make really bad decisions in your life because of that mindset. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, I, I'm not trying to preach anything, but I'm just being honest with with certain things that I, I used to do in my, in my life i used to like somebody will call me up and say hey you know great opportunity you want to do this nah i'm doing this other thing and i'm really happy you know thank god that uh i got the second call the next day from ozzy and ozzy said uh hey listen man you know we've been auditioning guys with a bunch of hacks randy keeps telling me that you're the guy by then kevin had really you put some sense into me by yelling at me <laughs> about what I had done, and it was kind of like I, I my mind my mind was in in the in the correct mindset. Yeah, 
No, I think that's fantastic. I mean, one of the one of the parts of the book that I loved was, um, and I don't know if this was a test or not, but Randy told you, look, if if they offer you anything, like don't take it. And that, oh, that, it was that, a test. Yeah, that happened like later on, I think you know. But uh, I love that part of the stories because those are the intricacies that no one can get unless you're there. Well, yeah, this is just circling back about what we're talking about trust. You know, uh, not that I was going to take it, but it was kind of like uh, you know, this is it's kind of like telling me this is what's going on. You're, you know, they trusted in Randy, Sharon Ozzy. So Randy was asking me, listen, you know, I need your trust here. I need to make sure that you don't take anything because basically I told them to get you the gig because I trust you and they trusted Randy. So it was basically kind of like, uh, you know, this is, this was going on. They need somebody to go out and in 10 days, they don't know who you are. You have no resume. You've never done anything. I mean, he's not telling me this, but I'm just giving you the facts. Right. Uh, you have no resume. I had no resume. All I, all, I, all I was, my identity was uh, this bass player, the sleeping in Kevin Dubrow's apartment, spare bedroom floor. I didn't even have a mattress, not even a box spring. <laughs> it's just a sheet and shag carpeting. <laughs> it's the 70s. Well, actually, it's 1981, but it's carpeting from the 70s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, when when you started touring, I mean, one of the parts about your book I thought was interesting is Randy Randy Rhodes was, oh, I mean, a constant learner. I know you took that from him, but I mean, he was always in different towns. He would be taking classical music, and he would he would sign yeah. up and go through the yellow books. I mean, talk to us about that. I mean, that constant learning that that you always saw from him. Yeah, you know, it, it, that's that's something that that I'm experiencing myself. You know, but then I, of course, that's 40 years later. Uh, because we didn't have the resources. See, Randy came from, came from a very uh, musical family, so he knew he knew where where the resources were. Uh, in today's world with social media, I, I can go to YouTube. As a matter of fact, I just did before this. I do this every morning. I go and go to YouTube and learn not just about the bass because I've been playing the bass for a while, but music. I'm more I'm more interested in learning music than I'm learning so the, the latest technique, fad technique, which is sometimes it's not very musical. It's just a technique, you know. But I'm more interested in theory, harmony, and uh, composition, and, and and all of that, you know. Which to me, that's what music, you know, songs are about. Music, you know, and. Uh, so Randy knew where to go, and he, and his mom having a school that he used to teach at, he knew well. Um, if I want to find the best teachers in town, I'm going to have to uh, get the yellow pages out on the biggest ad. That's the one I'm going to go for. And that's what he would do just about every morning, you know. You, you talk about that auditioning every day and, and you just alluded to it about your learning. But what's the creative process for you now? Creative, you know, everything, music, every song that you hear just comes from a thought, one thought, one thought, one idea, one little spark. And I got two choices. I can let the spark go. Oh, I had this idea that never becomes my song. It will become somebody else's song because that little spark, it's not, it's, it's, it's energy, it's frequencies just floating around, you know. And um, so I got, I, I have two choices. I'm either going to go to my laptop and open up, open up Pro Tools and start writing that. You know, even, even if it's just lyrics, I, I have sheets of lyrics that I just start getting lyrics in my head and I write them down. And uh, right now I'm working on a song that lyrically I started about 30 years ago. But now wow. is the time that it's, it was a lyric that it was personal, but now it's lyric that is universal. And I said, this is this is the time that this lyric is really going to resonate with uh, with the audience because you know sometimes you can write music for yourself, and sometimes you have music that you're writing for to send a message out there, your thought, your 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 perception of life, which is what music is all about. Mm -hmm. How do you go through this process? I mean, again, 70 years old that you celebrated last year, which is absolutely awesome. You look fantastic, man. It's just like, how do you still, how do you still push yourself and, 
you know, keep that learning process going. And, and the other part and with that, like, cause obviously you find that to be very, very important. How do you keep that up? Well, learning process is, you know, I look at nature and look at the order of things and uh, what doesn't grow dies, you know? So I figure as long as you're growing, you know, and uh, and it's not like I'm, I'm afraid of dying, you know, I mean, we're all gonna die, but, um, but I am, I am concerned about not fulfilling my potential before my time is over because that, that would be a waste. That would be an insult to my creator who allowed me, who allowed me after winning the biggest competition I've ever experienced as a sperm, beating millions of other sperms to get in the egg. And that's how much I really wanted to be here. You know, I got here just like you did and everybody else that, you know, has existed on this on this planet. And then, uh, you know, to actually say, okay, I'm done. I'm here on this planet. That's really, really throwing away or, or insulting your creator. You know, it's, what a wasted opportunity, you know, to be the best human being that you can. With... This podcast, we talk about hinge moments. So there's one moment, one decision, one event that makes all the difference in our life. And mm-hmm. and, I, and I know you get asked this a lot, but, and I, I was thinking about this because I was talking to my wife. It's like, I just don't want to ask the same question he's always been asked, but it's like, I see it as a way to still continue to spread like his legacy. But that moment with your own tour with Ozzy in, uh, in the bus and what took place with with Randy Rhodes? Can you take us back there and walk us through that experience? Because I know a lot of listeners here mm. have no idea about it, and I just think it's such a monumental and hinge moment that happened. Yeah, it's a it's a hard place for me to go to because I can't really talk to you about it unless I go there. You know, it's almost like remote viewing, and uh, it's tough. But uh, but I'll I'll do my best. I'll give you the. Uh, concise version of it. Uh, well, it's um, actually March 19th and we had just uh, 40, was 40, oh, uh, 39 years ago. It was 1982, March 19th. And that we, uh, you know, the band had just finished doing a show in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee and and we drove down to Kissimmee because we were bound for Orlando to do a show the following day. But the uh, bus driver told our tour manager that uh, he needed to make some repairs. So the uh, uh, the headquarters of the tour bus company was in Kissimmee. And it was at a property that had a uh, uh, landing strip, airstrip. Uh, it's a community in in Florida, Central Florida, where people have uh, airplanes and uh, they just park them out, you know, in the in their backyard, basically. And uh, Travolta lives there, and a bunch of other um, pilots, you know, enthusiasts, you know, guys who actually fly wherever they go mm-hmm. themselves. And uh, so we went there, and this is like seven thirty in the morning, eight thirty, because I ne- I didn't get out of my bunk until the aftermath uh i was i was racing florida so for me it wasn't that exciting to be back in florida because i was i've been there you know i was there most most of my life and and uh but randy was very excited being from california uh, southern california burbank he uh, he missed the sun we had just been finished doing a very grueling winter tour and he was very happy to be in warm weather and he just got out of the bus and and he he was ready to rock you know meanwhile and uh, so anyways the uh, the bus driver decides to take uh, to invite first our tour manager Jake Duncan and Don Airy our keyboard player to uh, to to get up on this Cessna that was parked at a hangar right across the, the strip the airstrip 
and he brings it out and they all go up there. Now I'm asleep. And back in the day, the uh, what you would do is if you park uh, a truck and, and uh, I mean a bus and you have your air conditioning on, you don't leave your engine on. You just put the generators. Mm -hmm. And those generators were really loud. We're talking about 1982, probably a 70s bus, really, you know, technology. And uh, the uh, they were really loud. So you, I, I really couldn't tell what was going on outside. Plus, we're, we're in our bunk, so you that area is sealed. You know, so, you know, for 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 noise, so we so we could sleep. You know, but I, from what I'm told, you know, by the people who actually witness everything, um, Jake Duncan and Don Airy was that they went up um, and they started buzzing the uh, the the bus, trying. You know, their excuse was they were trying to wake up Tommy Tommy Aldrich, who was sleeping in one of the bunks in in that compartment. And uh, so they land, and and uh, somehow they talk Rachel Youngblood into taking the next flight, uh, the next little trip on the Cessna. And she gets very excited because she she had never been on a private plane, you know, private plane, small plane before. So she changes her clothes. She puts on something special. And then Randy says, oh, well, if you're going to take Rachel up, I, I'll go with you guys. He, he just wanted to have a, you know, take his camera and take some fo aerial photos of, of the area. And and uh, so according to where the plane goes up and I seen photos of it. Uh, Don Airy was taking photos and he was he had a uh, telephoto lens. And there's one one of the photos that that I actually saw online. I found online years ago. I don't know if it's still up. From the uh, was the plane was perpendicular to the ground. It was coming in like this, right over his head. Uh, and he's like taking a photo and goes, "Oh my god, this is really close." He puts the camera down, and the plane just goes over his head, and then it clips the bus. By clipping, it means that the uh, the wing hit the bus tip and just uh, rolled over the bus and then crashed into into the uh, a garage of a house that where the bus was was parked in front of and it exploded on impact and that's how I woke up now before that. Randy had invited me to go up on the plane with him. And we had done just about everything, you know, all of the escapades together, you know, little adventures together. And uh, and I declined. I just didn't want to get out of my bunk. You know, I just wanted to, like, once we get to the hotel, I get out of my bunk, check into the room, get some lunch, and lay by the pool. That, that was, that was my, my big plan. And uh, so when the, when the plane hits the bus, it just shakes everybody. You know, and I stood right next to the point of impact, and it was up to my nose, and I'm 5'10", so it was probably around you know, close to five feet off the ground at that point. And uh, so, you know, we get awakened by this, boom, <clears throat> this, uh, and then I open up my my little curtain to my bunk, and and I jump out of my bunk, and the door opens, uh, Shara and Ozzy run out and we, run, we all run out at the same time, you know, just to see what happened with that. I personally, I thought there was a, uh, that we had, we had hit, uh, you know, we were on the freeway and we were in an accident. Yeah, I thought we were on the road. I think the last thing I expected was we were still in the same place. And uh, then I, we go get out of that area where all the bunks are. We open up the uh, the front lounge, and the the right uh, the pa the passenger uh, window was blown out. It was glass all over the place, and I right through that hole, I see our tour manager Jake Duncan on his knees, uh, pulling his hair out, going, "They're gone! They're gone!" And I, I have no idea what's going on here, and uh, so. 
we're trying to get out of the lounge to see what, what's, what's actually happening. And the uh, the bus driver's wife was standing frozen in, in on the doorway of the of the of the uh, of the tour bus, and Sharon pushes her to the side, and we all keep going out, and and I see this uh, to my right, a there's a house on fire, the garage, and I have no idea what's going on, and little by little we get it out of Jake Duncan that that's. Randy and Rachel, you know, the, the, the plane has crashed. And at that moment, once I, I have the realizations, I had this huge, I, I, I couldn't hear anything except this low hum, like that really low hum. And I, it was just like, I, I, I couldn't believe what was my reality. I couldn't believe how all of a sudden I, I'm in this surreal reality, you know, and uh, and eventually you you come to grips with it, you know. You have to like, okay, this is really going on, and uh, you know, a few hours later, because no cell phones or anything, in 1982, eventually the police and fire department came out. You know, we're in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And they, somebody that was on horseback saw what was going on from far away, went back to their home, and they they called the uh, the authorities, you know, to take over the uh, the situation. You know, I really appreciate you sharing that, man. Um, how did life change for you after that? Oh, it changed not only my life, it changed everybody's life, you know. Uh, the way that I, that I look at, 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 at life in general is it's, you know, it's, it's the ripple effect. It's, it's an incredible ripple effect. And, and what's really interesting about Randy's passing is that it's, it's a quantum ripple effect because it knows no time it's timeless timeless there will be i get messages on social media of children children 10 year old they're not even teens yet they're they're they they just discover randy and they want to play guitar like him and then they you know they find out they start doing research, you know, they hear Ozzy and they go, oh, wow, what a guitar player. Who's that? Oh, let me check him out. Maybe I can friend him on Facebook. And then they go, oh, he died almost 40 years ago. And that's kind of traumatic because it's like, what happened? How did this happen? And then they get into like, you know, the sequence of events and they're traumatized. Just like somebody will be traumatized 39 years ago when they first heard about the news that he had passed away. So mm-hmm. it transcends. It transcends time and space, you know, certain incidents. So that will be just the same way that I was affected 39 years ago. I continue to be affected and others will continue to be affected by it in the future. <laughs> you know what I mean? So Absolutely. it's like, it's 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 not just in my own personal, uh, you know, as you might have it. You know, it just it it, it it's it's a timeless. It's going to be a timeless moment in history that will re- retain its effect on generations to come. I never thought about it in terms of that instance, so I'm glad you illustrated that because that makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. You talked about, especially in the documentary Hired Gun, how every time that you played, it was a blessing. And this oh, it still is, is. Yeah, and, and share with us like what, what you meant by that and how that plays out in your life. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, when you first asked me the, the previous question, about a moment in time that that actually encapsulated, you know, that the shift in my life. Uh, yes, definitely, Randy. Randy's, you know, 
like we, we just we just talked about. Another one in my life was was uh, watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And that is something that it, it had the same effect in my whole generation, you know, that happened in 1964. And it still does. That's why the Beatles music is so timeless. Because it still does. It's the same thing, it's, again, generational. You know, like, you have kids who love the Beatles. You have, I mean, I hear so much influence, Beatle influence in, in today's music, you know, from, from, from young artists, you know. Uh, influence. I'm not talking about quality, but the influence, you know. Uh, and... I mean, you know, if you, if you, if you look at them individually, uh, let's say I was watching a documentary on George Harrison and I realized, you know, he was the first really spiritual uh, musician, somebody who was a pop artist and still brought spirituality to our culture. And when I say our culture is because, you know, I'm living in the United States and part of the, of the American British, you know, the new wave of British rock that, that was, we were just so consumed by it, everything, you know. And one thing that music really did socially and culturally back in the early 60s, it brought everybody together. When I first got to the United States and I was relocated to New Jersey, my family, I noticed like there was like little pockets you know, you have your DA in New Jersey. I was living in New Jersey, West New York, New Jersey. You have pockets of Irish and Polish. You had, you know, Latinos, you have blacks, you had the Jewish and, and all of that. And then in school, it was the same thing. You know, I, there weren't too many Latinos where I was at the time. And, and so I was kind of like a loner. And then the Beatles happened and overnight I could talk to anybody. You know, just just by combing your hair forward instead of back, like you had a, <laughs> you know, Friday you comb your hair back like uh, like one of Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, and then by Monday you came, you know, from watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, you comb your <laughs> your hair forward, and that meant you're you're one of us, <laughs> you know, and that brought everybody together, you know, and uh, that that was a huge moment for me, and then and then uh, almost forty years. To the date, um, surrendering my 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 life to God at my lowest point in my life, you know, I mean at my lowest point, not spiritually, but definitely, uh, you know, I was as broke of a starving musician as possible. That means I did not have a girlfriend. <laughs> it was just. <laughs> I did not have a girlfriend at the time. I just broken up and I was living in Kevin, Kevin Dubrow's uh, spare bedroom on the floor. But I made peace with God. And that's where that you know, keeping my, my fingers moving. You know, it was kind of like, uh, okay, this is it. I, I'm, sur I'm surrendering to my creator. And as long as my fingers keep moving, I know that that's a sign to keep playing, keep going. And if they ever stop, that's fine because my relationship with God is more important than anything. You know, it's, it's, and that's something that I've had as a kid. You know, it's, uh, and it's been a journey. It's been a journey because uh, I was raised Catholic and I had questions. I had questions. And, uh, but I could just consider myself a Christian now. I'm, I'm, I'm Christian. I'm not really a member of any of any uh, sect, you know, mm -hmm. you know, to being, you know, Presbyterian Catholic or whatever, you know, right. I'm Christian and that's it. But I, you know, I, I do know, I do not follow or believe, you know, my perception of God, of course, Christ as a, as somebody who walked this earth, this plane, son of God. Yes. I see that. And there were certain things that people wore and looked like, in that time, 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago. Okay. But the perception of God that when you tell people the word God is usually the, the point of view of some uh, painter from the Renaissance period that did a mural with a bearded man you know, muscular with a finger touching on, on Adam, you know, 
the Sistine Chapel. And no, God's way bigger than that. Mm-hmm. You know, my perception of God is the creator of, you know, <laughs> look at your window and they just keep looking. <laughs> you know, 10,000, you know, 100,000 million light years away and just keep looking and you might find, God. you know, God is, it's all around us anyways, you know, but this is, it's, it's, that to me is the creator, the same creator that created all the planets, created nature, created, you know, we're just a, a continuum of all of God's creation, you know. So when I say I, I surrender to God, yeah, I surrender to the law of, of things, of God's will. Uh, one thing, one of the things that I that I learned recently that I that I used to get a lot, a lot, I'd be very confused about with my faith was yeah. uh, difference between free will and God's will. And I go, and then finally, you know, recently I I, I got clarity on it that there's two things. There is the order of things in the universe, the same order, gravity, same thing that keeps planets from colliding and as, as they expand and and if there's something changes it has a ripple effect on everything you know because it's the order of things you know maintaining that order it's that it's god's will do the right thing don't don't create chaos you know which is what free will gives it the option okay you got god's will and then you got the free will to do god's will or create chaos, you know, and think about it. Be very careful with, with your choices because you, you want to choose God's will. You want to choose order. You don't want to choose chaos if you want to have a will-lived life. I like the way you put that there, Rudy. It's good, man. Thank you. Yeah. So what was it, if you don't mind me asking, so, I mean, I've been six years sober, but... What is it that 23 years sober and I've spent time in those meetings? What was it that years ago brought you to those meetings? You know, very interesting. Well, it's just a sequence of events, just like anything in life. You know, it's uh, if, if, you know, seek and you will find for, you know, so <laughs> let me give you chronological uh, events. You know, it's like in my life, I, you know, before I was 19 or whatever, I didn't drink. I was sober, completely sober, you know. But see, this is, you can be, in my in my perception is you can be sober, you cannot have alcohol or anything or any, you know, any substance, but, but still think like an alcoholic, mm-hmm. you know. And it's, it's the same voice that as, as, when you're a kid, you say, come on, have a drink, you know, come on, be, be like everybody else, you know, vibrate, resonate at the same frequency. Like, you know, if you go to a room, you go to a party, everybody is, is, you know, in a club, they're dancing to the same song, they're resonating, they're vibrating, they're all on the same frequency. And you must drink alcohol to reach that frequency because I was too young to know any better. Okay. <laughs> so, so, you know, and, and I got to tell you my, my, my pursuit of and of happiness in my life was not based on partying because I come from Miami, which is party town. If I really, if if I really wanted to become a musician because I wanted to party, I could have just stayed in Miami, done all, the, and especially in the seventies and eighties, do all the drugs that I wanted, do all the alcohol that I wanted, and you know all the other activities. But that's not that was not at the core of what I wanted out of my life. So. What I did is I, I kept I you know I, I kept it really really pretty much straight straight enough to party a little bit so you could be trusted because imagine being in an industry at a time that if you did not partake just like everybody else and I'm talking from lawyers to record company executives to musicians to managers to agents everybody partook so if you didn't do that. What's wrong with this guy? Mm, I cannot trust him, you know, mm-hmm. or, or people that you say, well, you know, when I party, I want to be around partiers because I don't want to have somebody going like, mm, you know, judging me, you know, for partaking. So, so it wasn't until I started playing with Ozzy that all of a sudden, once I, once I, I, I was trusted to be part of the inner circle 
very small inner circle. I, that I was actually like uh, chosen to be Ozzy's uh, drinking drinking buddy. <laughs> I was the new guy. Randy already done that. Tommy Aldridge had been around for too long for you know for you know he, he, he was contemporary of Ozzy. You know Black Sabbath, Black Oak Arkansas. They toured together and all of that. Mm-hmm. So it was and it was like I was the new guy. I was the guy who was you know was like let's see what this guy is made out of. You know so. You know, that same, that, that voice showed up and it say, hey, look at you. It's time to celebrate. You got the gig. Come on, you're hanging with Ozzy. Come on, let's party, you know. So I, you know, that's, that's when I really started to like ease off and say, okay, I guess I don't have to uh, approve anything. I'm here. It's not a good time. <laughs> so that started around 1981. And, you know, and I had my ins and outs. Sometimes I would like overdo it, trying to keep up with Ozzy, and I would quit. And then certain things happened in my life and so on. But 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 drinking became a a uh, a tradition, basically. Sometimes I would just do, would not even drink on the road. And then, and then I will make it up when I was home, you know, because I missed out on it, you know. So, and 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 even even if you decide, okay, in my case, if I would decide, okay, I'm not going to drink today, it would mean that I was making a, uh, I was making a deal with my alcoholic mind. My alcoholic mind would say, okay, okay, don't drink today, but, you know, next weekend, let's have a good time, you know, type of things. And so... It, it led to a point that I became an angry drunk. And 23 years ago, November 29th, 1997, I became an angry drunk because I found myself in a situation that I needed to resolve. But in order to resolve the situation, I could not walk away from it. Yes. <laughs> so I said, you know what? I, I can't keep drinking and be part of this situation because it's going to destroy my family life. So... I stuck with it, with the situation. I stopped drinking. In the process of stopping drinking, you realize like, I gained my life back. It was like, wait a minute, I will have to have a lost weekend, you know, where I start drinking on Friday, Saturday, I got a horrible hangover. And then by Sunday, I'm coming back from the dead. And Monday, I'm rolling again. That's three days out of a week. That's almost my whole life right there wasted, you know. So once I made the decision to to stop drinking, it was like, wow, I feel really good. I'm free. I was actually free because you're not under the, well, if you're drinking, you cannot do this and this and this and this and that because, you know, you're under the influence. And you could get sent to jail or kill somebody, you know. So it was like, wow, now I'm sober. It was like, wow, this is great. I feel really, really good. My whole body, my spirit, my, you know, and everything. But the thing was that there was no way in those 23 years, even though I was looking for it, that I had my spirituality back to being as strong as it was in 1981, 40 years ago, when I surrendered my, my life to the creator. I couldn't find it. I just couldn't find a way for 23 years. And then recently, recently I, I, I joined the program and it was like, there it is. You know, everything all from the 12 steps and everything that, that embodies the, the AA uh, philosophy. It was like, oh my God, you know, I got fellowship out of it that I didn't have before. It was pretty lonely experience you know not even talking to anybody about it you know that that i people offer me drinks all things i don't drink that's it i I didn't go into any any other details about it and and also during those 23 years as a sober individual from alcohol i would still make alcoholic decisions (laughs) you know so i did all of a sudden it's revealed to me like hey you are an alcoholic and you have an alcoholic mind. And it was like, oh, I get it now. So now it's like I am very careful with, with my not only my choices, but the process of, of making choices. Something comes up or something is developing, something is building, and I might get an emotion about it, like, mm, you know, and I say, well, okay, wait, think about it. I give it time. 
and the right answer will show up, will reveal itself. But before, it was just like decisions made like that. I thought any decision that comes to my mind has got to be a good one. No, I would say 90% 90, 90 of them were not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome, man. Because I believe like, yeah, if, if I react, um, I'd say 99% of the time, my reaction is going to be incorrect. Um, yeah, because I have that same kind of yeah. mind, man. Yeah. Rudy, I want to ask you this. What question um, should I be asking that, that I'm not asking? No, actually, so I, you, you have allowed me to go down uh, paths that the usual conversation doesn't take me. So I really appreciate that. Well, it's like our Starbucks conversation, right? Like we're just having a cup yeah, of coffee. Exactly. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> What else? Um, what else do you want to add to our conversation? Oh no! Tell me about yourself. Oh man, I can't do that on the podcast. I can do it. I can do it if I hit. I can do it if I hit record off. I mean, what? I can end on this. And once, once you take us on this part, um, I believe that tenacity is more important than talent. And I believe if if we have tenacity, if we're willing to do whatever it takes, then then we will give ourselves the opportunity to be successful. Um, and that was from, that was from Henry Rollins when I was a kid, man, I was always a big Henry Rollins fan, but I never forgot that righteous statement. And when I look at you and your career and always looking at the opportunities that you have and always constantly learning, I mean, I see that tenacity uh, play out again in your life and your career. Yeah. I mean, I would like to add tenacity according to God's will, because you can take the wrong path if you're using the, whatever it takes. I, I, I would add to that whatever it takes as far as God's will goes, you know. And how, how do you decipher that then if, um, you know, God's will and then your own free will? Yeah. Well, that's one thing that I, I mentioned before that, I, that really helped me out uh, with the program, AA, and that's give it a lot of thought. Give it a lot of thoughts. Think about what what effect will my decision have on my family, on my career, and most important, on my relationship with God? It's mm -hmm. awesome, brother. You know, the, the answer will reveal itself. Yeah, I believe that. I know when the, uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, Rudy, thanks so much, man, for joining us and taking the time. And uh, man, I really appreciate this. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it, Dr. Bell. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.